So there are so many incredible acts of cruelty that were part of this. It was mainly perpetrated by ordinary people. The implementers were ordinary people. So now, how do you heal when it is a neighbor, when it is you know someone who was in your church choir, your own church choir? These are friends, people who have been together. And in some extreme cases, even in an intermarriage, where a husband killed his own wife because she was touching. Well, welcome to All Things Reconciled, the podcast of the Peace and Reconciliation Network of the World Evangelical Alliance. So glad that you've joined us today, and thank you for taking time to invest your heart and your mind in thinking and hopefully acting toward the ministry of reconciliation in your own life, because our desire is to inspire and equip you to embody and embrace the ministry of reconciliation right where you are in your local context. Being a peacemaker and a reconciler is the everyday task of the Christian. It's not just for special people, extra special people. It's for every Christian. And so we're really glad you've taken time to think about this with us. And I'm very pleased to welcome Joseph Numatera, a very special guest that we have with us as part of this All Things Reconciled series focusing on Africa. Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Now, Joseph, you call Rwanda home, and I wonder if you could just introduce yourself to us. Yes, I'm a pastor, I'm a husband, and I have six children. So we are Rwandans, and I've been working mainly after the genocide in helping the church to heal and to reconcile. So that is my main job, but I'm also a pastor of a congregation in a Pentecostal church. I also do some other work with PRN. I've been uh, an advisor. This far, I also help with PRN Africa. I also like to teach and train and talk a lot in different parts of the world. I talk about healing and reconciliation. Now, we're approaching almost 30 years since the genocide in Rwanda, which is incredible to think of. Could you... Joseph, for those of who may not know even, there's people listening who may not have been born when that happened. Could you tell us a little bit again of the history of what happened back in 1994? I think people were quite shocked. From April 1994 to July, one million lives have been taken away in uh, brutal killings. And so the killings were ethnic and it was a combination of many factors, you know, combination of political machination and propaganda where the leaders, mostly of the Hutu ethnic group, decided it was time to finish all the Tutsi in the country. They thought that would be a solution, what they call the final solution, to bring Rwanda to stability and peace. So there was a time before that, time of mobilization, you know, with a lot of propaganda, slogans, singing, and reinforcing the hate through our prejudice and talking so badly about the Tutsi, that they are cockroaches, they are snakes, and they are dangerous. And the only way for Rwanda to be peaceful is to finish all of them. 
So with that, there was also on the other side training of the militia, and uh, these young people sometimes are just ordinary people, village people. Sometimes they are jobless, you know, young people in the city. But uh, the main people who are thinking and organizing were highly educated politicians, professors, teachers, and sometimes also church leaders. But the militia were just ordinary people who were organized and armed to do the work. So when it was time, these young people started to erect roadblocks and then they went house to house to the list were already made. And in Rwanda, being a small country, it is quite easy to know who is what, Tutsi or Hutu. And then these young people were going from house to house and also on the street, sometimes even going to the bushes and the places with dogs to hunt those who are hiding. And on another side, I can say that among the Hutu, there were different kind of reactions to that. Some of the Hutu were really like, you know, doing the work. Some of the Hutu were just afraid and uh, kind of in between. And then some, very few of them, were very supportive of the Tutsi. And they did, you know, what they could to hide the friends or neighbors or feed those who were running away or help, you know, some of them to cross into Congo or Uganda to run away for their lives. And what I also see in the picture is the church. You know, I could see the church going into the genocide. Everything really showed that we are going into bloodshed. But I could see the church divided. First of all, on a spiritual component, I could see the church that is just, you know, religious people who go to church, nominal Christians, who were no different from everyone else, you know, in the hate, in the preparation, and also in the killings. But there was also another section of the church that was more of this kind of, you know, Pentecostal spiritual, you know, praying and saying, okay, if there is bloodshed, you know, let's just cleanse ourselves and clean ourselves and go to heaven. And then there were also those in between. So with a church that was not really united, you know, even if we had this platform like, uh, you know, the, the Catholic, you know, the Council of um, of Bishops and, and uh, the Protestant Council, the Evangelical Alliance and all these uh, groupings, but there was no strong voice of the church to say, we are going into a very bad direction. And even when it happened, there was no kind of strong indignation of the church to say, this should stop and then call to the international community to say, hey, come in, you know, something is going completely wrong here. People are being killed. That voice was not really strong enough. But to be fair, I can also signal, you know, some of the people, like individual or small groupings of people who did what they could because of their faith to, to hide, you know, the Tutsi who were being killed. And also some voices, you know, not many, but some voices could just, you know, rise in the media and say, this is not godly, this is not right, what is happening here is cruel, it's sin, and some of those people were also killed, and some were treated as traitors. And so we have all these variations among the Christian community, 
And after the genocide, someone wrote a book. It is called Faith Under Fire. Try to collect some of these stories of few Christians, few Christians who stood because of their faith to help those who are being hunted to kill. But the majority, it was maybe uh, going through the same emotion of hate and killing or just fear and, and just, you know, uh, standing by and say, oh, this since I'm not the one being hunted, you know, it's not my, my business. And so we had uh, this whole spectrum in, in the church community. So the genocide went for three months, uh, and then, uh, yeah, it was, it was really cruel. So it was not just, you know, mobs going to homes, to, you know, pulling people out and killing, but there was also a lot of categories of cruelties. So a lot of rape happened, a lot, a lot, and torture, where people were left to be, you know, cut into pieces, but left to die slowly, sometimes eaten by dogs. And some people were even asked to dig their own uh, grave, and then they were buried alive. Children were asked to, yeah, not to rape, I mean, to have sex with their parents. So there were so many incredible acts of cruelty that were part of this. And one of the things with the genocide in Rwanda is that it was mainly perpetrated by ordinary people. The implementers were ordinary people. So now, how do you heal? You know, when it is a neighbor, and uh, when it is, you know, someone who was in your church choir, your own church choir, these are friends, people who have been together, and in some extreme cases, even in an intermarriage, where a husband killed his own wife because she was dirty. So that was really, some of the cases we have, are even within a family that was mixed, where one side killed the other, within the same family. You know, when such cruelty is done by an army, it is kind of a system and very impersonal. But when it is implemented by people you knew, a teacher, this is, you know, John, the Peter, the, who we grew up with, it becomes very, very hurtful. And so for the three months, uh, people really, you know, they were killed in big numbers, in a very atrocious way. And some of the people who escaped, some of them are still carrying machete scars and find, you know, people who are maimed, you know, and you can still find in Rwanda a lot of that. The scars must go very, very deep, not just physical, but right down into the very core and being of yes. individuals and, and society. So, yes. Joseph, could you, what, what was your story in that? What were, tell, tell, tell us a bit about who you were in that, because that must have been a very difficult time for you. And... I mean, goodness, you're you're still a young man, so you must have been a very young man when that happened. <laughs> I'm not very young. I was uh, in uh, in in ninety uh, four. I was twenty nine, thirty, and so we were just you know not newly, but uh, two years in marriage. So we already had uh, our first son. So. My story is a story in the genocide, is the story before the genocide, because this is where everything started. 
Now, I grew up in a family that was not very divisive or talking too much about hating the, the Tutsi. I grew up in a Hutu family. I was not really taught by my parents. And all of us, we grew up with this sense of, you know, just welcoming everyone. My father had many friends among the Tutsi and the Hutu. We were sometimes even sent to go and stay with the Tutsi families. So we were not, we didn't grow up with this bitterness and prejudice and hate. And so that really helped during the genocide. Now, in 1990, I got saved. So when I got saved, that was also very helpful for me to encounter Jesus and to be transformed. But I think most of the preaching about salvation, it was mostly dealing with, okay, you need to repent of immorality and drunkenness and this kind of visible sin. But there was very little said about prejudice, hating people because of their ethnicity. That in the church was really like not there. So I could also see, even in a Pentecostal church, I had also, I was exposed to pastors who still had those prejudices. Sometimes they could speak very negatively, but not from the pulpit, but on the side against the Tutsi. Some pastors were very good, but among the members, I also had all these, you know, people with hate, people who could speak very openly, you know, against the Tutsi. And sometimes even in the prayers, as a church, we could also pray because there was war during that time. So sometimes even when we pray for peace, we are praying against the Tutsi who are attacking the country. Even if we had some Tutsis within the church, we didn't care. So all that kind of mixture was a preparation that helped me to go through the genocide. Because from a family background and the kind of my understanding of scripture about loving your neighbor but also love your enemies, even if I was told that the Tutsi were my worst enemies, but still the kind of understanding, I don't know which Bible everyone was reading, but uh, everyone had their own interpretation. But uh, I still felt it was the right thing to stand even in the genocide as a Christian. So I also prayed my my parents because though that time they were not saved, but they were very balanced. They were very open and welcoming to both sides. So during the genocide, I can't say I was this kind of very good man, but sometimes I was also you know, going on one side or the other. It was a very emotional time. We were not hunted as Hutu. So that means we did not fear for our lives. But on the other side, as a young man, sometimes the Hutu militia could come and tell you, you have to go with us in the killings, or you are against us. So we feared mostly to be taken into violence as a man to go and join the violence. So this is why we had also to hide, not because we were, we were hunted, but because we were avoiding to be taken into the violence. And... Uh, there was a time of tests, is when a Tutsi lady who was thrown into a grave, you know, it's a mass grave, somehow God spared her and she survived after many cuts with machete. So a friend came to us and said, 
we know this lady and she's still alive. Can we bring her and hide her in, in your home? So we did all we could. We brought her in our home, which was extremely dangerous. Because when you were caught with a Tutsi, you were killed by the militia. So we spent three days and nights with this lady hiding, and then we could help her escape into Congo. So we had to pay some militia to take her in the night into Congo because our area Kiseni, is near Congo. So she survived and we praise God for that. But I can't say this is an act of heroism, you know, because we still had fear. And we also had news about where our friends were hiding. We didn't have enough courage to take food to them. And some of them were killed. Some of them survived. So I can't say we should be celebrated as heroes, but I'm just saying for us, the experience of the genocide was a mixture of everything. Fear. One time, we, we feared for our lives. Cowardice, because we, we knew some of the news were saying we have some friends who are hiding. We didn't go to see them and give them food. And some kind of courage on the other side and of taking risks. So toward the end, I can say we don't have any, any kind of straight line the way to the genocide. I remember... After the genocide, we used to tell people, oh yeah, we are good people, we didn't kill anyone. And we didn't even tell the militia where people were hiding. So we are clean. This is how we used to, you know, to think, oh, you know, why everyone should be really celebrating us and singing about us as heroes. But in the end, when we started to hear what some of our friends did to help the Tutsi, mean, <laughs> We felt so small because there are people who took risks and some of them died. Some of them survived, but they did incredible things to help the Tutsi during this time of darkness. So we started to become sober and uh, we really felt small and we say, you know, we thank God. It's not about what we didn't do that, you know, people should sing about us, but it's about also, you know, this things that, opportunities that we had to serve that we didn't take. That's what made us to come back again to our senses and just feel uh, humble and just come back to God and ask for mercy. Part of your journey in that very difficult, both internal and national journey as a people, has been to become more significantly involved in reconciliation work over the last decades. Could you tell us a little bit about that? How did you get involved in going from that internal journey of, you know, fear and courage and, you know, all those types of emotions and actions to being very involved in the healing journey of your nation? You know, when that genocide stopped in uh, July uh, 94, because of fear, we and my family, we had to flee, and we went to Congo, and we were refugees for two years. And there is a lot that happened there. As refugees, we lost, you know, I lost my father, my sister, my son, and we lost so many people. And then we went to the lowest, living in the plastic and without food and 
we almost died of cholera many times and there was danger all over, not only from the militia within us, but also the Congolese coming to loot and take everything, rape women. So it was a time of extreme testing and uh, trial, but we also experienced God in a very unique way. That in 96, when we came back to Rwanda, all of us, Rwandans or non-Rwandans were in Rwanda, we were stuck. Everyone was asking, so now where do we go from here? So then in 97, and the beginning of 97, I went to my church. There was this workshop calling Healing the Wounds of Ethnic Conflict by Dr. Rianon. It was not really like, you know, systematic as it is today. It was just, you know, some teaching on trauma, on forgiveness, on the power of the cross to bring healing. So when I attended that, it was my first time I was given, not only me, we as the people, church leaders and youth leaders in my church, we were given this platform, first of all, to talk. And there were Tutsi and Hutu together, share our experiences. What did you go through? How can you see God's love even through the darkest of your times? And then also, how do we let go of our pain, anger, and bitterness, and shame? Because I was getting so much shame of being a Hutu after the genocide. I felt like I don't want this skin. I don't want to be associated with the very group that committed the genocide. I want to become something else. So all of that during that workshop, my identity in Christ, I was given, I was offered this principle of First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, of what does it mean to be a citizen of the holy nation. I was for the first time told the, the cross is not only a place where we bring our sin, but also our pain, our anger, our bitterness. I was like, my goodness, I've never heard something like this. We were talking about forgiveness. I discovered I had so much to forgive, not only because of the genocide, but even within our family. We had so many issues. It was my first time to really deal with so much pain and find relief at the cross and embrace this new identity that is so liberating of just believing I am a citizen of the holy nation, that my being a Hutu, you know, should not kill me and weigh me down. And it is just okay to be a Hutu with the history of the genocide. But coming into this whole identity, I can use even that identity to bring healing to others. So this is where I found this, you know, healing. I got reconciled to God, though I was a preacher, but I had a lot of problems with God myself. A lot of questions and answered. It was my time to be given permission, even to say, I'm angry at God. So why? And then I could just pull all this anger, angry against the church. I was so mad at the church and see not only what happened within my own church with the betrayal and people were killed and died in the church, but also how the church behaved during the refugee crisis. We were left alone by the churches, the church leaders. They were treated differently than other refugees. So all that, so I had to deal with the forgiveness, to forgive the church. I don't say to forgive God, but to reconcile, to reconnect with God and to rediscover God's love, even through the time of pain. 
So with that, Dr. Rianon was leading. Then when we were sharing, she invited me and she said, we have a training. So later, I attended a training in 1997. Again, I attended a training on the same healing the wounds of ethnic conflict, the same format. But now I was trained to share with others. I was very hesitant. And then she said, why don't you join us to interpret? Because I used to be an English teacher before the genocide. So she encouraged me to join only to interpret because when she said, God is saying you are the one to come we were waiting for. I said, no, it is not God. I am a Hutu. (laughs) (laughs) I can find my own healing. But you can't speak about these difficult things in this country because I am from the very people who did this. So don't, don't, it's not God. You are confused. And then in the end she said, okay, it's not God. Why don't you just join us to interpret? You'll be speaking in Kinyarwanda, translating for me. I said, oh, yeah, that's, you know, I don't need God for that. I can, <laughs> I, you know. And we also, we were very poor. We had, we have lost everything. We were living in total poverty. So I said, maybe I'll get some few money and, and help in interpreting. So that is when we went to the first workshop and the second. What I saw God doing in liberating people who had gone through huge losses, people who saw their whole family exterminated in front of their own eyes, coming in tears and saying, I'm giving away you know, my desire to revenge. I was plotting to kill my neighbors because their parents did this to us. I am done. I give away my desire to, to revenge. I was like, my goodness, what am I saying here? So and then after those workshops, Rhiannon said, we're going back to the UK. So you and your friends, one of my friends was my, my colleague on the team, was a Tutsi. And then she said, if you feel God is telling you to continue, just go on with this. If you feel it's okay to go home, just go home. So me and that, that Tutsi friend, we prayed and we just felt we have seen what God can do when we present the message of the cross in a very simple and authentic way and invite people in so much pain and anger and guilt to come to the cross in love and, and come to the God who loves them, want to embrace them and find this new freedom. See what, what we saw was uh, something we could not really just say, let's go home. So this is how uh, we started now to do this work as Rwandans, but also we had to revise the material and adapt, you know, a lot of the teachings. And so, and then we decided it was time now to train other local groups. And after as uh, the message, we were going to every town to bring church leaders together, uh, help them to find their own healing but also train them into how to do this work. Then uh, we saw the fruits. It was quite a lot. Even churches could not speak to one another in the same town. Now we're coming together to form their first interdenominational fellowship. In most of the towns, even today, the groups that are there started when we brought them together. And for them, it was the first time even to meet. That was another dimension. And we started to see those groups going to schools, to even to government leaders, to genocide survivors groups, 
and taking the message and the fruit and the testimonies started to reach people in other countries. And this is how we ended up uh, in being invited in Burundi, Congo, and other parts of the world. Yeah, the, the immensity, the immensity of that task, Joseph, is, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, the, there's so much brokenness in many, many different parts of the world, of course, and you know, and I know that this work that you're a part of has been welcomed and embraced, and is def- definitely needed other places. I wonder if you could help us understand. So we're, it's a, we're approaching 30 years of, you know, in 2024, it'd be 30 years. What's the impact that this has been having, the healing journey, but also the reverberations of the genocide in the next generation? So I'm thinking of people in their teens and 20s who were not around, but they've heard the stories. It becomes part of the national story as well. What are you observing in the next generation? Because this immensity of the journey of reconciliation, experiencing God's healing in this, just doesn't stop with a workshop, right? So what are you observing? Yeah, we we noticed something when we started to work with university students. We realized most of them were born after the genocide, like now today, 29 years later, uh, university, many were born after the genocide. So we realize when they talk about their story, first of all, they will tell you, oh, you know, in Rwanda, we are all Rwandans because that is the, the political line of the country that you are, we are not supposed to talk about Tutsi and Hutu. So in the same line of thought, people, young people will think, oh, if we talk too much about the genocide, that will be now taking us back to all these, you know, divisions and, and you know, and, and ethnic, you know, uh, separation. And so because of that, parents, we realize that most of the parents do not share with the children about the personal story or the history of the family. And most of those parents, these are parents who have seen their own parents being killed and they grew up with so much trauma. So in their own trauma, then they, some of them, they started to have problems in their marriage. So we started to experience, even in Rwanda, a lot of you know, conflict and domestic violence. And so most of these young people, even Christian homes sometimes, could tell us, you know, for us the main problem is not the genocide. It's the family dysfunction. It's what we see in the family. It's the hate and anger our parents have against each other. So now we started to explain to them and say, the reason why you see your parents the way they are, it's because of the trauma they have been carrying. So by not, uh, by trying to protect their children from the story, and a story that can also carry hate in them and anger, at the same time, they brought a lot of a cover of silence that is very unhealthy. So children had to now start to find out themselves, maybe through aunties or how things went for their own families. And then some of them started to realize, okay, my parents did not tell, but our grandparents, we, we knew how they died. And now because of what happened and somehow they got the stories and they started to develop their own trauma and fear. And they started to mistrust, 
you know, colleagues in class because they could say, if their parents did this to us, what about, how do we know in one day they can turn or they can turn against us? And now also working in prisons, we started to realize that most of the parents were telling us that when their children heard about what they did, some of them disconnected. Some of them were so embarrassed by what their parents did that they don't want to associate with them. They had even to change names. Some of them had to change their name because of the embarrassment. So then those children whose parents were in prison, some of them could just tell everyone that they were orphans, that, you know, I don't have parents. And some of them, it is the father and mother who are part of the genocide. And these young people had to grow alone or going to prison most of the time to take food or and support their parents, but hiding the true story of their lives. So then we realize on both sides, children who grew up with parents who survived, they received the trauma in one way or the other. So they started to develop fear and mistrust against the other, other students. They became very sensitive and look around to see who is what. They started to get interested in knowing who is what, even in our ID, that Hutu and Tutsi do not exist. But they started to develop this kind of sensitivity because of fear and mistrust. And so on both sides, we started to see, and then it was also very obvious with the testimonies of young people when they started to finish school, then you could ask them, so when you think about marriage, can you marry any uh, Hutu or Tutsi? Do you really think it matters? Or as Christians, it's okay to marry any. And some of them will be honest and they will say, oh, you know, no, we can't intermarry because my parents will not even allow that. So then you started to see the transfer. But some will be hiding behind the parents. But it is their own, you know, rejection of the other side. But it is so well covered with church language, with, you know, all these nice, you know, young people are very smart. They don't talk about Tutsi and Hutu and I, I hate them. They have very skillful way of, civilized way of avoiding each other. Yes. Or yeah. pretending, you know, we are okay, we are together. But you start, you know, today, when you go to social media, this is where you discover some of this bitterness come out very, very easily. Because the law in Rwanda is very tough against what we call genocidal ideology or ethnic division. So young people will find maybe other outlets to just let go of their anger, insulting or abusing other people, but in a different way. So there is a lot of that. And science, like the mental health department, is also has been very open, you know, to give some of the statistics of these young people. There's a lot of mental health problems and depression is very high among the young people, the post-genocide generation, but also the use of alcohol, drugs, and, you know, this high marijuana or, you know, or, or kind of, you know, disorder behavior that is disorderly. And it is quite big in the post-genocide generation. So people give many reasons. Some of them have been brought up by single parents because one of the parents died 
and uh, they were brought up by single parents. Some, it's because the parents, because of their trauma, became alcoholic or even silent. Everybody has to medicate it some way. Yes, the withdraw. Sometimes it's the withdraw, and, and the children started to experience this lack of communication, the, the abuse in the house, the, the tone of anger or sadness in the house. I know some of these young people who tell us and say, my parents do not even talk. They're always sad. There's so much mm -hmm. pain in the house. They don't tell us why. They don't say, uh, you know, this is what happened. But they're always in pain. And young people will say that. My mother does not sleep. She drinks, drinks and drinks to quiet her pain. But she's also very abusive. Or maybe she cries all the time. And then when we have uh, times like in April with the commemoration, you know, everything comes even stronger because the television, the stories that are told, now the personal testimonies of not only, you know, the, the killings or the atrocities, but also how people survived. It's also, it's very vivid. So it brings a lot of questions that are not asked by the younger people because it is not really correct mm. to ask such questions but it leaves these young people with so many problems. So in, in our work, we have been thinking about, first of all, to tell the story. Hmm. So tell the story of the genocide. We need to let them know this, the genocide is not science fiction. It's not something, you know, mysterious. It's a reality that happened and that is with us. And help them to see how, what they are going through you know, connect. Like one young lady said, I grew up without a parent, even if he was there, but I didn't feel his warmth and embrace of, mm. of a father. But now, as I'm going through this, I start to realize that my father and my mother, both of them are genocide survivors. And they have so much they are carrying that they could not offer to us the love that a parent can offer to uh, children. And I used to judge them. I could just, you know, think, oh, these people are so careless. They are distant. They are almost like absent, you know. So, but that also helped, you know, these, some of these young people to understand their parents. And also, we also go to the next step and say, how can we minister to them, to our parents? Because it's not only about us. But we also, as young people, I'm not me, I mean, the young people we work with. So we also do a lot in, in high school. It is the same situation. The trauma is there. The anger, prejudice is already there. Even when you give open space, young kids have prejudice, ethnic prejudice, even if it is not allowed. But they have their own way of playing you know, around those things very skillfully. And now we are doing also what we call peace education with uh, drama and using music and drawing and painting you know, to approach the children, so to allow them to bring out what they are carrying, what they are thinking, and then to help them to understand how what they are going through is connected to the genocide, even if they are the third generation. Wow. So, Joseph, with all that, and as you just said a few moments ago there, the 
commemoration will be happening in mid-April this year for, I guess, year 29. And I wonder, what is giving you hope? Like, where do you feel and see hope in the midst of this for your people? And also that you have a large diaspora people that have had to leave the country over the last few decades because of all this. What is giving Joseph hope in the middle of all this? I, uh, you know, that is a question as a team we were discussing yesterday. And uh, we were saying, it's not only in Rwanda, it's all over the world. What we see is a high increase in negativity. Even in the U.S., I have friends in the U.S. Everyone in South Africa, my friends, everyone in their own country, not only in Rwanda, there is so heavy negativity. It's all about stories of of hate, you know, killings that have been happening in all the countries on racial tensions. And I just, you know, we were discussing with the staff yesterday and said, we don't want to fall into that because we have been witnesses of what God can do. So I think for me, my hope, and this is the same with our team, is to go back to the stories of hope, of resurrection, of people we know, even today, who have gone from the worst to become our champions in the community. You know, and these are people like, you know, if I give you just... One example, one was a demobilized soldier. So when he came back, he was uh, wounded. Now today he's disabled. And when he married the boy, his wife, he didn't know from which group she came from. And then some of his friends told him and said, you didn't know your wife is Hutu. And he tried, he attempted to kill her. You know, many times he, he became suicidal. But as he came to our workshop with his wife, he's one of our champions in the community. He goes to all the demobilized soldiers to help them to come out of, you know, all the drunkenness and because most of them are living with high level of trauma. He is always radiant. And when you see, every time you talk to him, he, he speaks life into you again and again. So for me, um, I see an, an army of young people we have been working with. I am quitting, <laughs> not quitting the ministry, but my team is 80%. These are post-genocide. And when you see the strength and energy, the creativity in the work, they had all reasons to say, let's go to IT. Let's go to do, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, business and, and get big money out there. But they are really carrying this message of hope and sometimes they even lead workshops for adults, for people who are like their grandparents. And we see how God is still touching the lives of people through this younger generation. And for me, that is really, that is extremely powerful. So we are always exposed to stories as we do this ministry, even for people we met before. See how they are growing into their healing how they are doing this work, going to the communities, helping others. And, you know, this is also some, something very unique. I am, I am old. I am 50-something 
I'm 50 something. And, uh, 50 something. That now. just qualifies as old. Is that what you're saying? And I, I go to many places. I remember going to a land center. I had an issue with our land, you know, to get a land title, and there were many issues. So I met a young man there, and he says, you know, uh, I'm going to help you because you don't know. I grew up an orphan, and because of your workshop, I was I decided to quit even school and to just go and, you know, on the street. But after your workshop, I got so much strength and hope. I continued with my studies. I owe you this. Let me help you. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> wow. And in Canada, actually in Canada, I have a young man. Not only he got healed, but he got married to a Tutsi lady. Now they are in Canada. They are Rwandans. He's a medical doctor. He called me recently and he said, you know, being a black people in, in a, a community that is mostly white, you know, it's, it's quite difficult. But for me, the reason why I can overcome all the rejection is because of the workshop I went through. You really helped me, you know, to go through uh, my own healing and st strength uh, came to my identity that I can even stand the biggest, the worst of the abuses from the white people. And they even said, as a medical doctor, when I see people in my, my you know, practice, most of the people come, they will talk about their sicknesses, but I talk to them about pain and the trauma that they're carrying. And I'm continuing to, to, to propagate healing, you know, through my medical practice because of, you know, what I receive from you. So all these are stories I get every day that carries me to the next level. And I'm maintained into this, you know, not like, you know, sometimes I, I feel discouragement. Sometimes I get down. It's quite overwhelming. I'm working in South Sudan, in Ethiopia. And then when you start to feel like, oh, now we are getting somewhere, another war comes. So I'm, I'm, Sometimes also, <laughs> I, I go to wow, Joseph. those kind of, but every time, even when I go down, you know, I will, God will bring toward me someone with a story and say, because of you, I remember in one place, one young man said to me, he said, I am a pilot. You know, I, 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 I is, uh, is in the army, in the air force. And uh, he's a pilot. And he said, you know, I was going really quitting. But when I met you in this year, this is like 20 years ago. This is where God gave me another, you know, energy to go for this. And then now I could go back for studies. And today I'm a pilot in the, in the Air Force. And, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you again. And every time, even when I'm discouraged, God will make a way through such mm -hmm. stories of what we hear. But also, every time seeing my team, uh, uh, I'm like, Lord, this is a miracle. My son, mm -hmm. who, who, you know, he was a baby. He was born into this ministry. And now he has finished high school. He's a very good facilitator. He has started you know, being invited in all places in Rwanda. And uh, when he comes back and give me all these stories of, you know, 
I can send you what he, he gave me yesterday in one of the workshops he was conducting. And he's very young. So that gives me hope. And then I feel like, Lord, you know, this is a, a, a strong river that will never mm. go dry. Well, thank you to our guest, Joseph Numatera, for joining us. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for your encouragement. And if you want to find out more about Joseph's ministry, it's Rabagarana Ministries in Rwanda, rabagarina.org. Or you can also search Healing Hearts Transforming Nations. So thanks again to Joseph. And thank you to listening to All Things Reconciled, the podcast of the Peace and Reconciliation Network. I'm Phil Wagler. And uh, please tell your friends and even your enemies about this podcast and other great EFC podcasts. And you can follow the Peace and Reconciliation Network on Facebook. Donate to this work through the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada using the code WEAPRN. Or check out our website at ReconciledWorld.net. Thanks again for joining us. Go in peace today and go make peace every day.